Welcome to A History of the Inca. An interview with Daniel O'Shea of Centro Cultural Acamama. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I hope you are all doing well. I apologize that it has taken me a few weeks longer to return than I originally said. It has been a long couple of months, with successive illnesses running through the house. Fortunately, not that illness, but bad enough that it definitely cut into work and the podcast. The good news is that the podcast has returned, and in two weeks, we will return to the narrative. But today, we will be discussing the Centro Cultural Akamama. Akamama has a very special mission of registering artifacts from a private collection with the Ministry of Culture. To learn more about that and the other functions of Akamama, we have today Daniel O'Shea, the general manager of Akamama, joining us to tell us more. Enjoy. I'm here today with Daniel O'Shea, who is the general manager at Centro Cultural Acamama. Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure to, to be here. And I'd like to congratulate you on the, the success of your, your podcast, your platform. And that I'm very, very happy to be invited by yourself here today to, to be part of your project. Well, thank you very much, uh, thank, and thank you for joining me. Uh, before we begin, and, and before we start talking about the center itself, I want to talk a little bit about you. What got you interested in archaeology or history, and specifically about okay. Andean archaeology? Mm -hmm. It would have started definitely when I was in secondary school in, in Ireland, and you start doing the, the history about the, the explorers and the new world and, and things like that. And there was just very, very little information. It was kind of like you learn about these explorers. They, they go to the new world and it was capture the king and all done and dusted. You know? And that kind, of, uh, that kind of really got me interested. And then when I started looking further into it, you find that there's basically nothing in the, the written language until the Spanish actually arrive in, in South America. So you get a very one-sided view of, of what actually happened. You know? And also then you learn it's like the Incas and Pizarro, and you don't hear very much about these uh, pre-Columbian cultures or the cultures that from before the, the Incas, and like you've, you've covered with some of the episodes, like with the Chimu and the Wadi and Nazca and that. And yeah, this this what really kind of perked my, my interest in, in Peru in particular. So in 2007, I decided to join a, a volunteer organization and I came to, to Cusco and I joined a, an archeology span project that had just began in a new area in Cusco, um, in La Convención, not far from Machu Picchu, in a place called Huayopata. 
And it was actually the archaeologist on that project, John Valencia. He was a student at the university here in Cusco, and he was doing his thesis on, on the valley. So it was when I started coordinating with him and about what he was trying to achieve with, with his thesis and that, that that's what really kind of uh, got my juices flowing, so to speak, with, with archaeology. You know? So what John was doing with the university, he was having to coordinate with the university, then he was traveling, he was like four hours away from, from Cusco. So when we started the project, no electricity and, and things like that. So no phone connection. So it really was kind of out in the boondocks. And that was actually quite exciting. And I enjoyed that. I mean, coming from, from Europe and that. But then seeing the difficulties that he had in how to coordinate his works, not only with the, the university, but also with the Ministry of Culture to get the certain permissions to carry out the, the works that they wanted to know. So with John, it started with kind of pouring over maps and things like that, looking where we thought there might be you know, structures or uh, some ruins and that snow. And fortunately enough, yeah, we started to, to find some, some structures and that, and then we were able to register these, we were able to, to photograph, map these, and that's how the, the process initially started you know, with, with John out in Wyopata. Yeah, I can definitely relate to the lack of electricity and amenities and it's exciting and it's great for several weeks and then it, it starts, it does start to wear on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah, but I mean, I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. Um, like seeing a, a project starting like right from the, the inception seeing how John had to coordinate with the ministry, like I said, how he had to coordinate with, um, with his university. And then, like we mentioned, no, when you don't have the electricity, you don't have the phone signal, the laptop becomes obsolete. So it's all down to written records and hand-drawn maps. And then John would have to take all of this information back to Cusco, basically on his, his week off every month, and then work his week off every month, putting everything into into an electrical form and that, you know. But in saying that, it was always exciting then when John came back because now he'd have something that he could he could show you and that's you know on the the how the project was was developing. You no, know? initially with John, we started with just one mountain, and then his thesis became basically the whole valley because there were other sites through the valley. And he started to look at what's the relationship between these different sites on different sides of the river down the, down the valley. So the more time he was spending um, on the project, it kind of just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And thankfully we had a lot of help from volunteers and, and that who came on the, on the project. We were a great help with the, the mapping with the clearing with the the photography and and stuff like that obviously with the maintenance we were in the cloud forest and for those who aren't familiar with the cloud forest once you cut something down there basically two three weeks later it's it's grown back already you know so then the maintenance projects became 
a lot bigger than that as well. But I mean, John persevered and yeah, he basically got through the the project. It took him a few years and yeah, it was completed. I think it was in 2012, he completed that that project. So from 2007 to, to 2012, he completed the, the project. And then did you go on to work at other sites? Uh, can you, do you want to talk about those a little bit? Actually, after when John finished his thesis, we had another archaeologist come in with John to take it a step further. So after doing the explorations and the mapping and the registry, another archaeologist came in in partner with John, uh, Zenobio Valencia Garcia, and he started an excavation project in the same valley. So at two sites, Cochapata and a site called Incatambo, initially just with some test pits to see whether it would be viable to, to carry out uh, a full investigation. And that started in 2012 and was completed in 2015. And as Zenobio completed the excavation, we had another student come in, uh, Mitchell Paredes, and he did his thesis on the artifacts and the pottery that we actually found in the excavations. So Mitchell actually graduated as an archaeologist uh, September last year. So I was actually fortunate enough to be involved in a project that started with the exploration party going right the way through to you know the the full analysis of the the ceramics and the potsherds and that that were were found at the site you no know? then with john the project moved to cusco um so we were actually quite happy to get back to see our our families and have electricity uh, <laughs> you know, uh, to be able to get back to the land of the living, so to speak. Uh, but we continued working with, with volunteers and then we were lucky enough to be able to visit some projects like in Sacsayhuaman, in Piquillaca, and then John set about doing his own excavations then very, very close to the perimeter wall of Piquillaca at two sites called Onocochayoc and uh, Tanta Estancia. So that was again looking at the relationship that these sites would have had. Um, what we found that there was Inca, but Piquillacta, as some of your listeners probably know, listening to your Wadi episode, that this is like a, a different culture that relates to the, the Wadi culture. So then it's like that kind of relation between why is the old site not occupied, and then why is the building like outside on the perimeter of the the Wadi complex? You know? Awesome. So then, after your ex your work on excavations and visiting other sites, the center Centro Cultural Akamama came about. Can you talk about the center's mission, maybe how it formed, and maybe a little bit about the the team you have working there right now? Yeah, sure. So again, through John, um, it was through a colleague of John that we we heard that there was a gentleman with a very nice collection and that he would be interested in speaking to some archaeology professionals and maybe having some help with a registry program and that. And that's Jaime Bayona, who is the 
custodian of the collection that we're, we're currently working with. Uh, Jaime is an anthropologist. He's from, from Cusco. And it was just one of those where when you come together and you've got similar interests, similar passions that it, it just sparks were flying and things just, just kind of took off from there. Delcy Espinosa Macias is our archaeologist in Acamama. And I've worked with Delcy since 2011 on a variety of projects. He was also involved with projects with, with John. Um, so Delcy came on board with that. And then also her assistant, Vanessa, is a student in the university here in, in Cusco, um, Vanessa Tito Cavieres. And she is basically part of the, the four-man team now, including myself at the, at the Centro Cultural Acamama. Jaime has a collection, quite a large collection of, of artifacts kind of spanning the, the pre-Columbian era, Inca, colonial, Republican eras and that. And he's inherited this from his parents. Um, his parents from the, the Vilcabamba region, so obviously a, a region that's very, very rich in the, the history, especially pertaining to the to the Wari and the Incas. And it was like, how is he going to, to manage to register all of this? He wanted to, you know, share his knowledge with, with people and that. So we're saying, okay, the first thing we have to do is get onto the ministry and first mission has to be to preserve what you have and to to register it no then obviously we want to try and promote the the history and the culture of peru i for one was quite ignorant when i came to peru again like saying you know about the inca and you hear about the nazca lines and there's not too much outside of that when you start thinking then about you know then you find out oh there's wari oh, another empire before the incas i didn't realize that then there's Chimu, where there was a great alliance with the, the Incas, the Moche in the north, Cupesnique, uh, Lambayeque, and the list goes on and on and on. No? Um, so to raise awareness in this with um, activities that we will do and through the registry process, and then making the archaeology accessible to, to basically everyone no? of all ages, that you don't necessarily have to have a, a degree. You can, if you're just aficionado and you're passionate about it and it's something you'd like to do, come and work with our archaeologists and our anthropologists, you know, learn the process, be part of something bigger. And also, I mean, we want to look at the, the educational side of things. You know, so to involve the younger people as well, you know, so students in, in primary school and uh, secondary school, if there are students at university or having trouble accessing materials for a thesis or dissertation, something like that, then they can come and use part of the, the collection and that, that, that we have as well. So it's quite a big kind of mission that we have, but it is kind of preserve and promote. And then obviously the education playing such a big part in, in that as well. No? And then with us having worked together now since the four of us are together since 2018. Um, I've worked with Delcy, like I said, since since 2011. Vanessa's been on board since 2018 and, and that as well. 
so yeah, we're kind of into our, our fourth year now of, of being together. So yeah, a nice team. Yeah, sounds like a nice team and, and a really, really cool mission. And just to elaborate a little bit for the for the listener, uh, Jamie or or Jami's parents came into these into this collection through various means, maybe maybe legally, maybe illegally. Sort of, it's a little unknown as to how some of these were procured, but he came into possession nonetheless. And so uh, he figured the most responsible thing to do is to get them registered with the with the Ministry of Culture. And approximately how many ceramics have been registered at this point? What 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 is the size of his uh, of the collection to, to begin with? His yeah, his collection probably in total, um, probably looking at including like miniatures and and things like that, probably about two thousand five hundred pieces. Um, so quite a large collection. With the Ministry of Culture, they separate it into two sections. So you have a section that's pre-Inca and Inca, and then colonial and Republican. So to date, since 2018, we've probably registered close to 500 pieces, um, which we're quite proud of considering the last two years have been pretty difficult. Um, but we've registered, and that's more the colonial and um, Republican era. About 95% with, with that. And slowly we're passing what we get done with the, with the pre-Inca and Inca artifacts um, through to the ministry as we, we get those completed. Um, the majority of the artifacts are ceramic. But there are some some artifacts that are wood, that are bone, stone, um, some metal objects, and that as well. But the majority of the the objects are are ceramic. Uh, do they tend to be whole ceramics, or are they sort of uh, pieces at times? Um, I guess how what what is the condition of some of these artifacts? Yes, some of these artifacts are in excellent pristine condition. Some have been repaired over the years, and yes, yeah, some then are fragments as well. But there's a large part of the collection that is very much intact. Um, a lot of Inca, Moche, Chimu, and Chankai ceramics. And that's it. They would probably be the, the four cultures that um, would make up the, the most part of the collection. But also in the collection, there are some Tiwanaco, Nazca, Paracas, Kupisnike, Lambayeque, and that as well, as well as some of the, the local um, cultures that you have in and around the, the, the Cusco area, like the ethnic groups, such as like the, the Chanapata, Marcavalle, Cotacalle, and the Quilque as well. When I first transferred my major into anthropology and wanted to focus on archaeology, uh, one of the first things I did was volunteer at the museum and, and register artifacts from the American Southwest, buffalo bones, um, pieces of pottery. Uh, so I'm very familiar with, with the, of course, the registration process is different and, and the logging is different, but I understand the general idea of what you're doing there at Akamama. 
is this opening it all for public for the public to participate in and and in the registration of artifacts is that new is this sort of the first kind of workshop of its kind in peru or are there other centers like akamama uh in the area i'm not aware of any other centers that are doing exactly what what we're doing um i know obviously that the the museums and that in cusco they will if they haven't been already, then they currently are involved in the registry process in the, the same way that, that we are. Um, I know just speaking with, with other people in Cusco, to me, they know someone who has a small collection and that there are a lot of these little private collections out there. But there's also this fear of people coming forward to, to the ministry. They're worried that they may get in trouble legally, that maybe, they will lose the artifact if they go to the ministry, that it'll be repossessed in some way. So hopefully we can kind of lay some of those fears and kind of lead the way for people who do have these collections that if they're not sure what to do, they can come and speak to us. What's the process? How do I go about doing this? Because basically every registration that we do we pass that information onto the ministry and then the ministry will transform that and transfer it into their own kind of birth certificates i would call it for each piece so the piece is registered to a person to a place with a number and that so this piece cannot move without the birth cert so to speak so that's basically cutting out this kind of illegal trade and and things like that, you know, and this black market and, and that that we all know exists with the, the illegal trade of, of cultural material. And that's something that we're we're really happy to do because we know that we're doing things the right way. We're preserving it for the future. We're going to be able to to work with with local, national, international visitors, and that's students, aficionados, like we say, even even the, the experts, if they want to come in and, and have a look around, I mean, we're more than happy to, to be able to you know, uh, give access to people when they need it, but also to be free and open about what we're doing as well. You now oh, that ties in nicely with, with a follow-up question I had was the, the fact that there are most likely many people who have private collections. I remember uh, reading about kipus and, and several of those are in private hands, for example. And I'm sure there's a lot of researchers who would be very interested in examining some of those um, artifacts that are that they can't get to um, just because they don't know who Absolutely. has them. They don't know where they are. Uh, they aren't registered. Do you see the center, uh, Akamama specifically, taking in other collections down the road once perhaps you're finished with this collection or even other centers popping up, sort of kind of collaborating in the same way that you do with private collectors? I think it would be a dream for us to to be able to do something like that. If we can be the the leaders of the way, even if people want to do it themselves and they just need some direction on on how to do it, Obviously, we'd be more than happy to to help with that if they need assistance or a locale or or that as well. The probably the biggest problem is that then if you're bringing in new collections, 
probably need to be registered first and then you need the permission to move them from one place to to another no so with respect to that it would probably be more us giving the information through our experiences and our connections with the the ministry and us probably going to other centers maybe to assist with with things like that if if that was ever the case in the future right so what happens to an artifact when it, once it has been registered with the ministry uh do you have does it have to be turned over then to them or does it get housed housed somewhere specific it will stay in the Centro Cultural Acamama, um, but obviously there are certain guidelines and we have to conform to storage procedures and things like that. So the ministry should be able to come to the Centro Cultural Acamama and say, okay, I want to see piece number ABCD, and we have to be able to present that to them at the drop of a hat, so to speak. You know? so, the, everything that we register and say where it is and sign it off, then that will stay basically in the the Centro Cultural. If it was a case where maybe someone would like to display some pieces of museum or something like that, then you have to go through another process with all the legal permissions to move these these pieces around if if necessary. But they will be housed in the in the Centro Cultural Acamama. Then obviously we've got like a, a beautiful catalogue. Then if there is a case in the future for students who would like to come and study it or have access to, to something, and they can do that, say, for example, if it's an international student or someone from, from Lima, you can send them the catalogue. They can have a look at exactly what's in the in the collection and then they would be able to select something like that before they come to Cusco to work on the piece. But obviously they would have to work on the piece in the Centro Cultural Acamama because that's where the piece would be registered to. So what was the ministry's reaction or or how did they yeah, how did they react when you all approached them with this idea of saying, hey, you know, we know there's a lot of private collections out there that were procured through various means, we want to get them registered with the ministry. How do we do that? W were they pretty open to the idea or were they sort of um, hesitant at first? The ministry, first off, they were very open. They were very much like, this is fantastic because a lot of the people keep these these collections kind of hidden away and, and that's so they're they're very, very happy to have more of this cultural material on an official register. Um, and for us, obviously, to be part of that registry process, um, having been working in the, the field of archaeology for so long, and, and that um, it's a passion of ours as well. No? And you just know that you're leaving something for future generations um involving people in like visitors to Cusco, school children, students, volunteers, and being able to involve people from across the spectrum. Um, I think that's that's a very big plus and it, it's a big motivator for us as well. Um, there's nothing we like more than people coming and bombarding us with with questions, no? 
And that's one of the great things about the workshop as well, that you have an archaeologist, an anthropologist, we have native English speakers, we have Spanish-speaking staff, we have you know, local staff and that as well. And I think it's just a, a different experience for someone when, when they come to the Centro Cultural that they're working on a piece and they can just, while they're working, it's why, 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 and what was this for? And, no, and they can get uh, a professional opinion about it. We don't always have the answers, though, Nick. You know, there's sometimes we do have to say, you shrug your shoulders and throw your hands up in the air. You say, I don't know, but I'll try and find out for you. But yeah, but it's still good to have that professional opinion. Oh, that's great to hear that they were so open. And and again, with as many private collections there that are out there, I'm sure this sort of work is much appreciated. And uh, as you say, it sort of leaves a legacy for future generations to learn from. Uh, I want to talk about the illegal trade of artifacts, actually. It's an unfortunate fact, really, that, you know, this has been happening for centuries. It, it wasn't just, you know, we could we could say the Spanish did it first, but originally, you know, we could look at local groups who who've looted tombs uh, previously. Um, you know, they they weren't relate. Maybe they were related to the leaders of that particular area hundreds of years ago, but not not anymore. And if there's gold in there, they're going to they're going to look for it. Um, and, and, it's not, yeah. and it's not just in Peru, of course, this is uh, worldwide. But why is it so important that we stop such activities? And, and what are we losing if we don't stop illegal trade of artifacts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've visited hundreds of archaeological sites in, in Peru, Nick, and I can probably count on one hand the sites that I've been to where there's probably no evidence that someone has been in there in their looting at at some point, no. Um, obviously, it's illegal, so you want it to stop. It supports an illegal market, which obviously you want to try and and eradicate. But it's a really good question. Like, what are what are we losing? So a lot of the time, when when these waqueros, as they're called here in, in Peru, these looters, when they go in, it's with a metal detector and a pick. They're not going in with a trowel and a, and a brush and doing anything systematic or that. They're, they're just looking for something that they consider to be more valuable. And that's no. So they're undermining walls. They're no, destroying some of the, the structures, the architecture itself, never mind the, the artifacts that are that are in the ground. They may think that, oh, this glazed pottery, this is modern, so this doesn't relate to this site where it may be colonial ceramic, which would prove that you have a reoccupation of of a site or a function of a of a structure or or a site has in some way been been altered over time. And you lose the context of how a piece was found and in what position was it an offering? Was it something used for cooking? Um, no, so you, you lose all of the, the finer details. Okay, you may have a, a very beautiful piece to, to look at. And okay, this piece was found in ABCD. And no, but apart from that, then you lose all of the context, which is something I've learned working with the, the archaeologists over the years, 
is that how you register even your layers of the clay and how the climate may have changed over time, um, how topography and that may have changed. And a lot of the time you have like the function of buildings changing and that as well over the time. So losing all of that information, you still may have a very beautiful artifact, but if you have so much more detail about the depth that something is found, then you can say, oh, it was actually buried. So it's most likely an offering or, or something like that. It was placed in a corner or it's found in the kitchen, it's found outside, it's found in a terrace or, or something like that. All of these different elements add more value to, to, the, to the artifact. And in turn, that gives us more understanding because like we said previously, you don't have much of the, the written record basically none of the written record until the Spanish arrive. So having these details, you kind of have this little kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of elimination process and, you know, trying to, to follow that route and then ultimately trying to come up with a, a sound hypothesis of, of why something existed. So losing all of that information, I think, is a huge loss um, in understanding our, our ancestors, you know? I could put it better myself, really. I don't think a lot of people understand um, sort of the the importance a, a site may hold, and you really don't know until you start digging carefully, start digging uh, into a site. Um, thank you for that answer, though. Uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, more about day-to-day uh, -day operations, I guess, at Akamama, sort of how have the last couple of years been uh, given the pandemic? How, how are you guys operating uh, under normal conditions and obviously now? And, and where do people go if they are in Cusco or if they're planning a trip to Peru in the, in the future and, and they want to book a session with you? Okay, so initially when we started, we were very good and then we kind of had to put on the brakes in the end of, of 2020. And we had to kind of ride things out and we're very much playing things by, by ear. But that actually did give us a chance as well to, to assess how we were going to approach things. We were able to expand our center. So we've added a second floor now. And our general day-to-day -day operations, um, we run two workshops a day and with a maximum space of 10 persons per, per workshop. Um, the reason we limit it to 10 is that we don't want to have like 50 ceramic pieces out and people bumping into each other and, and things like that. So we want to keep it to a smaller manageable group. And then obviously it's a very detailed process in that as well. Um, we're looking into doing our one day, two day and three day courses that we want to launch later this year. Um, we want to get involved with the, the schools and things like that. So a lot of the schools have not been doing classes in uh, physical classes. My children, for example, have been two years um, in school online. So basically the school year here is March to December. So they've just finished their, their second year in December just passed. Hopefully when it goes back to the, the presential classes and that, then what we want to look at is working with 
these schools, um, local schools initially, but then looking at like the the national schools and international schools and that as well, that they would be able to come and we could basically supplement the, the curriculum that they're teaching. So instead of children looking at images of moche ceramics and images of Inca ceramics and being told the difference, they could actually come to the center, the teacher can present this PowerPoint using our monitors and, and things like that. And then we would provide the, the materials and the artifacts for him to be able to go into a lot more detail. And I think this would be a, a really big plus for, for a lot of the, a lot of the, the students. Um, we're also looking at doing tailor-made um, workshops for uh, school tours who are coming to Cusco. And if, say for example, you had a class and you want something specific on the conquest of the Inca, you can contact us two or three months beforehand. We'll coordinate with you how we can we can work something out with that, like we spoke about earlier with granting access to international students. And that as well, we've also um, teamed up with Museum in a Box. I don't know if you're aware of, of Museum in a Box. It's a, a small computerized box and you have NCF stickers that you can place on items that play audio files. So in March, we will be launching our first collection. We will be launching 10 collections this year. And all 10 collections are in English and in Spanish. And we have three collections that will be English, Spanish, and Quechua as well. So it'll be 154 audio files with 68 items so but we're doing everything from say archaeological sites to the incas to produce in the andes to musical instruments and that and we'll be releasing these from march this year so a, an interactive activity as well for the younger well not only for the younger but for everyone but particularly for the younger members who would like to to come to the the center and that as well so we'll have different activities for the younger children who come um obviously handing a, a moche ceramic or an inca ceramic over to a 10 year old is not something i would feel too too comfortable about but like i said we do have some pieces that are fragmented and that and it's like how can you identify different parts or different vessels from different uh fragments the reassembly of some of these pieces and that as well which are great activities for the for the kids and you have these activities ongoing while their parents are maybe working in the same uh, the same salon on on the the more detailed stuff with uh, the registry process and that as well. So it's we can take the the accept the family groups and and that as well into into what we're doing. That sounds awesome. Sounds like there's something literally for all ages. But I also know all ages can be clumsy. Have there have there been any unfortunate accidents at the center? There hasn't. There hasn't. I mean, That's we've good, been good. We've been very good with like getting our procedures in place and making sure that it's you know one piece comes out at a time and okay, they're going to bring a piece out. Everyone, please sit down so there's no one kind of walking around and and that so yeah fingers crossed now it'll it'll stay that way and you haven't jinxed us Nick. 
<laughs> I was just gonna say, well, if, if it does happen, uh, you know who to blame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's that but, is yeah. excellent. That's excellent. But uh, I guess with visitors coming to Cusco, um, probably better to to book with us in advance. You can contact us via email, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, LinkedIn. And that will send us an email direct from our, our website. And yeah, if it's something that you want, like for a, a larger group and that, and you want to make sure that you can, you can get a place. Sometimes, obviously, there is places available, like on, a, uh, on an arrival basis now. If you just arrive, oh, is there a space? Yeah, sure, come on in. But I think as tourism, that will start to open up again. Um, I think it'd probably be a good idea to to book in advance, or if if it's a, a different type of session that you would like, or something with a school group, or you're with a private family group, or that, and you would like to, you would prefer to do something as a, a private family group as opposed to in a in a group with with other people. Yeah, we can always accommodate with that. You know? Sounds awesome. That is uh, when when I go back to Peru, and I will one day go back there. Um, my wife and I have been talking about wanting to go back to South America. Obviously, not currently, uh, but hopefully soon. I will definitely be looking at Akamama for and and come visit and and see firsthand uh, the process for it. Yeah, you and your family be more than welcome anytime, Nick. Um... And we'd be very, very happy to to have you at the at the center to to see how we're progressing and how the process is is actually working. So. That would be wonderful. Before I let you go, is, is there anything I missed or, or anything you want to want to discuss? I think I think you've you've covered your your basis quite well. I would say that if there is anyone out there. Um, who has any ideas of how Akamama may be able to assist them um, to please get in touch with us. If it's something that, um, you know, sometimes you need the eye looking in to come up with some, some good ideas and, and that. So if there's anyone there from any organizations or any institutes that they feel that we'd be able to, to help them in any way, please get in touch with us, no? that you can contact us. Like I said, directly through our, our website, which is www.akamama.com, A-Q-A-M-A-M-A, or at info at akamama.com is the, the email address. And then, like I said, we have the Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn as well, which is also another way for, for anyone to get in touch with us. But if it's anyone who has any ideas, any queries, uh, they need more information, please get in touch with us and we'd be more than happy to, to assist in any way we can. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Daniel once again for coming onto the podcast. It was great to learn more about the Centro Cultural Akamama, registering artifacts in a private collection and creating a space for everyone of all ages to learn from it is quite special. They are also doing a big favor for the show by promoting it at their workshops, which I am very grateful for.
I do hope to visit the center one day, and if you have plans to visit Cuzco, I suggest you do the same. The website for Akamama is again akamama.com, and a link is provided to you all in the show notes. Once again, we will continue in two weeks' time to continue the narrative. 